Hello, everyone. It's That Williams Guy, and we're recording Thursday, February the 9th at 7.47 p.m. Eastern Time. And joining me tonight, making a return visit, is Mr. Andy Stanford. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. And you? I'm going to make it. Going to make it. If you would, uh, just reintroduce yourself to the audience. Yeah. Hi, I'm Andy Stanford. Uh, obviously, my day job's for Surefire uh, as a consultant, actually, in, involved with training, which is relevant to tonight's discussion. And uh, I'm 61 years old. I just turned 61 last month. I started my combat shooting journey. Well, really, I started my combat shooting journey reading guns and ammo before I actually started pulling triggers on the journey. But I started pulling triggers when I was 15 years old with the Southwest Pistol League in Southern California. And then, uh, and I'm sure we'll just go through a lot of this, so I'm not gonna, gonna beat it to death, but I worked as a full-time trainer and taught in half the United States and Europe and Central America uh, during my career as a trainer, which I paid my bills, at least my share of them. Um, we owned our house free and clear, so thankfully the bills weren't too big for a firearms instructor. But uh, uh, but um, you know, been I, I realized I have over four decades of of dabbling, more or less, in this area. So uh, uh, I guess that's the short version. I, I think some of the rest of it will just simply organically come to light as we right. continue with with this uh with this podcast right you know it seems like one of the big topics of conversation in the gun world is people argue about competition stuff versus training stuff and then hey, is there any training value that comes from competition and so tonight's topic is going to be competition as training so first of all, I called Tom Givens. I called three people today, uh, mainly for social reasons. Um, and I talked to Lyle Wyatt. I talked to Skip Gokenauer, and I talked to Tom Givens. And I believe all three of them are, are major influences in the area of competition with its value for preparation for self-defense or tactical application. My last person I called was Tom Givens, which was probably about an hour ago. And, and he said, I don't consider competition training. I consider competition practice more than training. And James Yeager, the late great James Yeager, said uh, that, that training was where you learned what to practice. Yeah. So, and, and I don't know, we'll, we'll, we'll beat this around and and probably uh well obviously everybody watching will come up with his or her own ideas on it <laughs> uh which is human nature however uh i think as i was thinking about this lee you you contacted me approximately a week ago said you want to record next week or this week or whatever and i said yeah and then i said well what do you want me to talk about and you said, well, you you brought up, meaning I brought up competition as training, and that's what you wanted to talk about. So so just, you know, to first of all, 
let's define our terms. What is training? What is practice? I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, I do know this is uh, that to, to, I believe, uh, I've never been in a gunfight, uh, but uh, from everything I've studied is you will, as they say, you'll not rise to the occasion, you will default to the level of your training. Mm -hmm. So, so the amount of correct repetition you do will you'll do what you you'll do what you practice basically, uh, and yeah. uh, and that just, I believe is where the the thing of competition has some value. But we'll we'll get more into that. Go ahead. Yeah, just just a funny story popped into my head or or anecdote from my my upbringing. My mother never learned how to swim. And there was one time I wanted to go swimming and, and she was she's like, well, I can't come with you right now. And I don't want you to go by yourself. I was like, well, what's good of you to come with me going, I go swimming when, when you can't swim. You know, if, if I get in trouble, if I start to eat it, how are you going to come save me if I can't swim? And she said, I'd figure it out because you had to save me. <laughs> I don't think it works that way. No, not with swimming. At least. <laughs> and probably not with gunfighting either. Right. Um, uh, right before we hit the record button, <laughs> you said, where do you want to start? And I said, well, I, I look at this chronologically. So, you know, where, uh, first off, where did people train? They didn't train much in the, in the 19th century and the 1800s. I mean, they trained by themselves or, or military training. And allegedly, or, or as I understand it, Theodore Roosevelt uh, instituted the first formal police training as the police training trainer of New York City. Um, and, uh, and then I've, I've talked to Tom Givens and a lot of other people who say that formal police training really started in the 20s or 30s. Uh, obviously, the FBI was a big influence. And as you know, uh, I'm sure I'll bet $100 of my own money that you know that that most police training is some kind of PPC like course, uh, time stages of fire at close, medium and perhaps long range, which long range is, has decreased from 50 to 25 and sometimes 15 yards these days. Uh, and so actually that's a pretty good way to begin this discussion is I believe PPC competition was the first uh, competition as quote unquote training or practice or whichever you prefer, but uh, uh, a widespread and formalized uh, system of, of shooting courses, standardized, you know, in the case of PPC, nationally standardized. And it's funny, I have a American Handgunner magazine from 1976. And I saw it at a local gun store. I said, hey, can I buy that from you? And Gary Reeder said, oh, you can have it. And I think it's a very historical document because it has the national PPC championships 
the article written by Lucy Chambliss, who was the woman's champion for PPC forever. And I think the guy who won it that year was a guy uh, from Mississippi, if I'm not mistaken, named Philip Hemphill or whatever. I may have the name in the state wrong, but was the PPC champion. And in the same issue, there was a beta test class at Gunsight. So I believe that issue of American Handgunner is the hinge point between the past and the present uh, with respect at least to doctrine. Um, but PPC, in fact, it's funny that, that that American Handgunner was 1976 because that was the year of the founding of IPSC. So clearly the shift from PPC, heavy barrel, revolver shooting, wad cutter ammo uh, out to 50 yards with generous time limits and a very tight accuracy standard uh, shifted into IPSC. Uh, and um, this, is, this is where I enter the scene in 1977. So Jeff Cooper had the leather slap competition in Big Bear, California in the, the late 1950s and early 1960s, which was simply to shoot at, uh, I know it was a balloon at one point, a single balloon. And then the, and let's talk about the leather slap for a mm -hmm. few minutes because uh, when I, I actually shot a leather slap match in the 1970s and the qualification stage was five single draws at a 12 inch steel plate at seven yards. And whoever the top, the top 16 for the low time for the total of those five draws were in the man against man. And Jeff Cooper believed that the man against man competition was the actual match. It, the, the qualification was just a way to get to the man against man. And the man against man was the actual match. And so. What, what do they use for the timing devices? They had actually back in the seventies, when I was there, they had electronic timers. I don't know what they had. I think. Who was it? Somebody told me that some uh, Hollywood stuntman invented a timer in the 50s or 60s. I mean, it was was, uh, you know, pretty early for an electronic device. And by the way, the the record, obviously, they couldn't have a record for the man against man, but the man, the record for the qualification uh, was a guy named Bill French, who was an LAPD officer, tall guy, heavy set, and he had five. That his total time for five draws was something like two point six or two point seven seconds. And obviously, he was like hip shooting, and he he happened to look out and hit the target. But but you know what we're talking about is competition as training so the first thing i'd like to say is i believe man against man competition whatever the course of fire 
is a very valuable part of of uh, of competition as training, or a way a way that competition as training can have value. When I went to Gunsight in 1992, it was five and a half days, and the last thing you did was a man against man competition. You had a plate at seven yards, ten yards, and fifteen yards, and I, as I recall. The course of fire was you had to hit the 10 yard, the 15 yard reload, and then hit the seven yard. And it was two people firing at the same time on mirror image uh, setups. And to shoot against another person that's trying to beat you, that dynamic is unique. It's different than shooting a course of fire by yourself or a stage by yourself. So so first off, I, I'll cast my vote <laughs> that everybody <laughs> would benefit from doing some type of man against man training yeah. uh, at some point. Now, I believe you should develop your skill before you do that, because if you don't, you're just going to use bad technique <laughs> and shoot the, the man against man. However, at the appropriate time, I believe man against man competition is a an extremely valuable part of training. And interestingly, Jeff Cooper, if if we could dig him up and ask him, uh, I would bet a hundred dollars of my own money that he would endorse that. Yeah. <laughs> um, anything anything you have to add or or ask about that? Uh, just man against man training. Just want to point out that as we've covered in numerous episodes that, you know, the leather slap was where Cooper, Weaver, uh, uh, Phil Reed, uh, Eldon Carl, all those guys, you know, came into orbit of each other. And then, you know, Cooper and uh, I'd always said his name Plum, but uh, Lindy Cooper pronounced it plain. Yeah, it's actually P-L-A and the A has an umlaut yeah. so it's a german name and yeah. if it had no umlaut it would be plan yeah but with an umlaut it is more closely plain yeah, <laughs> yeah. and you know they they were shooting the leather leather slap matches and everything and then cooper and, and plain tried to evaluate what was going on why were people winning and that became the the initial foundation for what we know as the modern technique Absolutely, it, it grew out of this whole quick draw competition, but then developed into a doctrine for you know basically gunfighting. Yeah. So what's interesting is, and I've tried to track this down, and maybe I will eventually be able to track it down. I don't know, mm. but uh, what was the guy's name? I, I'll I'll remember it, but uh, I tried to get at where did Cooper's efforts change from the very specialized leather slap into the idea like the Southwest Pistol League, where as Cooper says, was diverse open freestyle competition of matches. And I have, uh, I've gone on eBay and Amazon and, and paid whatever the asking price was for out of print books uh, by Cooper in particular. 
Uh, he had a book in 19, I think it's 61, called The Complete Guide to Modern Handgunning. And there is, he's, he's a hip shooter back then mm -hmm. for, for close range. Well, interestingly, as a foreshadowing, Cooper, Cooper, Cooper talks about uh, four types of shooting, which are basically point shooting, either instinctive or, or like eye level point shooting, and then rapid or slow fire using the sights. And he, there is a tiny picture of Jack Weaver, and it says here, uh, something like here, California Sheriff Jack Weaver, uh, who uses eye level, he uses one technique for all four kinds of shooting. But what's funny is in that book, that is the only reference to that. The rest of it, Cooper is pretty much in line with Fairbairn or, or Rex Applegate or, or Bill Jordan. But, but pretty quickly, things changed. And that's a little bit different topic, which is competition as a laboratory. <laughs> if I remember correctly, uh, he had that book that you're referencing. And then the very next year, he came out with a book that was all about using the sites. Well, so the next, so I got a, a 1982, which turned out to be the revised version. Uh, and I didn't know it at the time. Mm -hmm. It was, and I bought it at the local gunsmith uh, on the used bookshelf called uh, Shooting, the complete book of shooting. And Cooper wrote the handgun chapters. Well, by just a fluke, I bought some guns and ammo magazines off of eBay to read the Cooper on handguns column. I want specifically, I bought them to get the Cooper on handguns column from the early seventies, which was when I started reading that. And I was just like, Hey, I want to, I want to look at what I saw when I was 12 years old, basically. Yeah. Well, interestingly, in one of those columns, someone said, Hey, I want to learn to shoot a pistol uh, it, can you recommend any resource? Well, Cooper said, well, you might check out the complete book of shooting. Well, this is 1972. The volume I had was 1982. So I'm like, hmm. So I hunted down the first edition, which was 1965. And as you point out, from 1961 to 1965, Cooper had... He hadn't reached, you know, his final or more or less final doctrine, but he was well on the way by, by 1965. And um, Jay Hohenhaus, who you've had on your podcast, Jay sent me an article from 1970, Guns and Ammo, called Combat Shooting to Combat Crime. And at that point, the modern technique was defined the terms the terms changed slightly for example he said the quick sight picture in the magazine article which changed to the flash sight picture you know when he formalized it later on however there were five elements the same the same five elements just named differently by 1970 and cooper was was 100 confident that what he had was was an order of magnitude or two better than the previous state of the art. Right. And by that time, that's kind of the, 
the period in which he's traveling around the world teaching. Yes. And before he's come back and, and founded uh, the American Pistol Institute at Gunsight Ranch. Correct. And what's interesting is in these early books and the early articles, he he gives away all of the secrets. And in Cooper on handguns, he does not even, I look through it and I think I'm correct. He does not even say the term or write the term weaver stands. And I was talking to Hackathorn or somebody goes, yeah, that's because he realized he might make money off it. And, and he didn't want to put it in print. Uh, <laughs> but, but the funny thing about that was he'd already done it. In fact, in the 1965 book, he says more about specifically how to train than he did in the 1974 or 1975 Cooper on handguns. Um, but let's, with respect to this topic of competition as training, what's interesting in the 1965 book, he has, and the 82 revision, by the way, he has a training program. So what is his training program? Well, a big part of it is in the morning and the evening, you do 10 dry fires at your light switch, <laughs> 10 in the morning, 10 in the evening. Um, he also says you should handle your firearm as much as possible. And he gives a very specific regimen for live fire. So what he says, and this is where this bears on what our, our specific topic uh, for this podcast is, he says, so if you follow this program, you will expend approximately 4,000 rounds and it will take you two years. And at the end, this is the main point here, at the end of those two years, you will be ready to enter competition. You will not win but you will not embarrass yourself and you will not be unsafe. But the point here is during the 60s and probably through the 70s, the, the state of the art of training was competition. The, the, I have a 1976 Southwest Pistol League course book. Most of those courses are found in the 1965 a complete book of shooting, or at least half. Um, so Rob Latham in a podcast recently in the last year or two said, you know what, when I started, and he started about the same time I was, I think he was in high school. He said, when I started doing this, we called it, we just called it combat shooting. And John Holshen said, I haven't heard that term forever, <laughs> combat shooting. So, so what we're doing is combat shooting. And uh, as you know, at the Surgical Speed Shooting Summit, I gave you that little packet. It said the American Combat Shooting Club. You know, so that's my little little old guy, uh, you know, my old guy thing. It's As far as I'm concerned, it's combat shooting. Well, um, but anyway, Rob said back in 1980, the courses of fire were far more diverse than they are now. And I was, uh, and I, I maybe I showed you this earlier, but I went to the used bookstore 
yesterday, day before, and just by serendipity, I found this, which was published in 1965, Guns and Ammo Combat Shooting Tips, you know, and it's got articles by Ayub, and it's got an article on Thunder Ranch, and and uh, mentions Chuck Taylor, uh, and even interestingly for 1995, it, it mentions the the champion combat shooters Mickey Fowler and Ross Seyfried. Um, so I, I was like, whoa, you know, this is kind of the holy grail for a peek into state of the art in 1995. But uh, but anyway, the the courses of fire that I shot, here's here's my hypothesis, and I want to talk to old timers to figure this out. But I believe that the experience I had in the late 70s in the Southwest Pistol League were maybe virtually identical to what it was like in the late 60s. Because the late 60s, by the late 60s, it had evolved. And I actually visited Gene Shuey, who was 89 at the time and probably 90. And he was the Southwest Pistol League B-class champion. And if I recall correctly, 1966. By the way, he was also Mr. America in 1960 <laughs> and the runner-up for Mr. Universe in 1962. Um, but... but uh, you know, Gene was telling me about what it was like uh, in the league in the late 60s, which, by the way, was so on our topic, competition is training. And I said this earlier, I believe that in the late 60s and throughout the 70s, really the state of the art in training was the the competition, which which became IPSC, and by the way, I was talking to somebody today, uh, not a not a shooter. I think I was at a coffee shop, and I said, you know, I was just telling them kind of what I did my whole life, and I said, well, imagine sword fighting on a pirate ship with cutlasses, and now think of Olympic fencing. So combat shooting competition in the beginning more resembled fighting on a pirate ship with cutlasses and now it resembles olympic fencing it's very stylized and i told tom what did tom said it was a track meet with guns and i said well the way i describe it is these stages look like the gold medal round at the international mass shooting competition because it's just run, shoot, run, shoot, run, shoot, no thinking. Uh, and it, and again, it's very, it is very, in a sense, stylized. The ability to get in and out of the shooting box, you know, efficiently and quickly is as important as the ability to hit the target. And I was that, talking, yeah, go ahead. That, that's, that's an interesting point that I think we can look at as far as like the different shooting disciplines. Uh, I've never shot Ipswich or USPSA. I did compete for a while in Glock, uh, the GSSF matches, and I competed in IDPA. And, you know, I, as you know, I've lived, I live in Georgia, and within an hour and a half of my house, there were one time there were three of the outdoor Glock matches. 
And so I got to go to some of the big daddies every year with that. And then there were several active IDPA clubs. And so there would be some crossover between the people I would see at the GLOP matches and the people I would see at the IDPA matches. And there were people who would beat me and IDPA convincingly. But then when we would go shoot Glock matches and you took all the running through the stage and it was just the stand and deliver with the pistol, they couldn't get within 20 seconds of me. Wow. And I was amazed when I saw that in the scores one time because there was a guy that I couldn't touch in IDPA. And then I saw where we were in the stands. That's very interesting, by the way, Lee, that that I'm going to have to chew on that tomorrow (laughs) Uh, because it absolutely illustrates. So what was the difference? The difference was all that other stuff. Yeah. Which is interesting because IDPA was designed Mm -hmm. to eliminate the weakness uh, of IPSC and USPSA. And what I say is, you know, it's so funny. Ken Hackathorne told me, he said uh, he was at the founding meeting for IDPA with Mm -hmm. Bill Wilson, et cetera. And he said, Walt Rauch, said uh after all was said and done walt roush raised his hand and said uh hey um, i'm sorry to be the turd in the punch bowl but how long you think it'll be before this goes to hell and everybody was shocked yeah and and ken hackathorn said i give it five years i mean and everybody was shocked at ken and it turned out, Ken said, it turned out it was two years. <laughs> it wasn't five. Um, but so, so, you know, that's the, that's the glass half full empty. That's the glass mm-hmm. half empty. But I absolutely believe there is value in shooting competition, whether it be the Glock match or IDPA or IPSC, anything where you're using more or less your same gun and drawing from the holster. And, and Tom Givens succinctly explained why this is so. You're shooting somebody else's shooting problem. You're, you're not shooting what you always want to shoot because you're probably going to tend to shoot what you're good at when you go practice by yourself or what you like. You're shooting a, a foreign shooting problem and you're shooting it among other people. So you get to compare yourself with the rest of the human race, at least at that event. And then the final thing is, um, you know, I believe the pressure of, of shooting with other people watching, mm-hmm. uh, what we used to call match nerves, which I believe is simply stage fright. <laughs> so, so in the beginning, at least, like I don't suffer that at all now. I mean, I just go yeah. shoot, I don't care. I don't feel those feelings. Uh, I do remember at a Soldier Fortune match, approximately 1990, on a pistol stage, bringing my pistol up and it was shaking. <laughs> and this is 13 years after I started shooting. Yeah. So I was not a, not a newbie. And my pistol was literally shaking from match nerves at the soldier fortune match that year and uh, uh, so i believe that 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 shooting a 
a shooting problem that you did not come up with, uh, shooting to compare yourself to other people, and the pressure of shooting by being watched by other people, I believe those are three very valuable uh, things that come from competition, uh, specifically, quote unquote, action shooting, practical shooting, whatever you want to call it. Combat shooting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to go back to something you said earlier where you talked about, you know, Cooper's practice regimen. And I said, handle the gun as much as possible. And I think that is one of the big takeaways from competition as well, because you know, it's forcing you to handle the gun. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. you know, from being on law enforcement ranges as often as I am when we have hostages, not students. And what I notice over and over and over again, no matter which agency I'm helping train or, or, or whether I'm at a class somewhere else, is the people who have obviously not taken their gun out of their holster other than to put it in the the lock box in the sally port at the jail since the last time they were on the range being forced to be there to qualify right right and they, they look at the qualification as oh well, i'm getting my training for this year it's like no you're checking an administrative box yep. for this year and yeah. you know they're so you can tell when they go to draw the draw the pistol I can tell what their score, score range is going to be just from watching their first draw from the holster. Yep. As well, okay, this one's going to be okay, or this one's going to be sweating it. Yep. And so much of it is the gun handling. I keep trying to tell them, it's like, well, we don't get enough time at the range. Well, the range is where we go to confirm everything else that we've done. You, know, you can do 10 to 20 practice draws every day, and we don't have to go to the range. You can practice reloads at home that don't require live, live ammo. You can do all these other things that don't require being at the range, don't require the live ammo, and then all of that will improve your performance when you're here at the range. And then it's obvious that they haven't done that when they come to, to qualify or to a class of what we're making them come to. Right. And you, you took uh, Larry Mudgett's class, mm -hmm. and I'm sure he told you that at his program for LAPD, they did over 30 hours of weapon manipulation with dummy rounds. Mm -hmm. So here's what I believe. So Cooper, I just, I made this up right now on this podcast. <laughs> um, Cooper had his thing, 10, 10 dry fire draw strokes at the light switch in the morning and 10 in the evening. Good, I agree with that. Um, however, what I'm gonna add to that is, load and unload your gun and load it as if you were reloading it using the same technique mm -hmm. load and unload your gun 10 times in the morning 10 times in the evening with dummy yeah. rounds if mm -hmm. you did that if you load and unload your gun 10 times in the morning 10 times in the evening and you do those 10 dry fires at the light switch in the morning and the evening I'll tell you what, you're going to be better than 90% of the people on the planet. The, the, um, but, but back to the competition thing. So I believe I was very lucky because I had one foot in the old Southwest Pistol League. So I'm just going to kind of chronologically go through sure. what I've seen and where I believe the most value in the competition as 
let's instead of competition as training, let's call it competition as preparation for self-defense or tactical use of the firearm. Okay. So we already talked about the value of a man against man, which I, I think is something that should not be lost. Remember, Cooper thought the man against man was the match. The rest of it was simply qualification for the man against man. Mm -hmm. So uh, I started shooting in the Southwest Pistol League in 1977. I was 15 years old and I shot three full years of competition. 77, 78, 79. I was 15, 16, and 17 years old, respectively, because my birthday's in December. <laughs> when I joined the Southwest Pistol League, I had just turned 15. Um, so in 1979, so you probably remember that back then they divided the people into the gamesmen and the martial artists. The gamesmen were the ones that simply were interested in the competition, the martial artists, which sometimes also called the realists, but back then it was called the martial artists, were, so the, the quintessential gamesman of the time was Ray Chapman. Uh, Ray was only interested really in the competition aspect. The quintessential martial artist of the 70s was Ken Hackathorn who was interested in the self-defense aspect. And uh, in 1979, in the Southwest Pistol League, which by the way, was the big dog on the planet in the 70s, anywhere else paled in comparison to the amount of activity. And in fact, Cooper's, Cooper's uh, contributions and his advances are sometimes called the Southern California Revolution. It was the Southern California Revolution of the 1960s and continued. The Southwest Pistol League shot 11 matches every year, and you were given points depending on where you placed, and your best seven finishes were totaled, and your total amounts of points determined where you placed for the year in your class. Um, I was in C class in, I was unclassified for half of 77. I was in C class at the end of 77. I won my class match in the last match of 77. And then in 78, I was in C class. And then in 79, I was in B class. Well, in 79, so my mentors were Michael Harry's, Michael Horn, and Lyle Wyatt. Michael Harry's is known from the flashlight technique that got his name. Michael Horn was the Soldier Fortune match director, and Lyle Wyatt is lesser known, but he and Horn were in Bakersfield, California, uh, and so they were really partners in crime there. Uh, in 19, so Horn was the league director in 77 78. And in 79, Mike Dalton became the league director. And most of the way through 79, late in 79, the so Dalton was a gamesman and my buddies were hardcore martial artists, Wyatt and Horn and Harry's. And so this was the struggle between the gamesman and the martial artists. And in 1979, 
basically, it's a long story I won't go into, but basically, I believe there was a coup and the gamesman kicked out Michael Horn and uh, Lyle Wyatt and and uh, uh, and again, I, the details are unimportant. But what happened was the gamesmen took over and they took over the Southwest Pistol League. And also, by the way, in 1980 is where the gamesmen, apparently, according to Tom Givens, is at the Nationals. The gamesmen took over Ipsic and which eventually USPSA split because America wanted their own rules and didn't want to be bound by the international rules. The point is, that is the big departure happened that early 1980 and i shot a couple of matches in 1980 i said this ain't fun anymore but and i believe i was lucky i mean i was only 18 and i just followed my buddies into the wilderness so the the main takeaway here going back to what rob latham said that in in the early days the stages were more diverse and I, i'm going to come back to this at the very end but i'm going to but here's what I realized. The value of competition as it pertains to preparation for a gunfight is directly related to course design. Uh, I shoot, the one thing I shoot every year is the Gunsight Alumni shoot. I've shot it three times. And I believe the Gunsight Alumni shoot at present is the the most thoughtful course design on the planet with respect to preparing for a gunfight. Uh, gun and I'm going to go through basically what I, when I was thinking about this podcast, I thought what I want to do is archive where were the best places where a competition was valuable for preparing for a gun gunfight. So Initially, until 1980, the best place to prepare for a gunfight was the Southwest Pistol League. Um, there was not a lot going on besides that. So anything IPSC or there were leagues in Texas, I think in Colorado, there were some on the East Coast, but, but they all directly came out of Cooper. And and the Southwest Pistol League, really, but mm -hmm. Cooper, but Cooper, really. So Jeff Cooper taught around the country, as you allude to, he taught various places starting in the late 60s. And most of these places, I would guess, the people that were enthusiastic started a club. But by and large, the majority of this was in Southern California, which is why, as I said earlier, they called it the Southern California Revolution, the revolution in technique, revolution in doctrine. In 1980, the, the tail started wagging the dog. I believe it is inevitable that competitors will take over because that's what happened in IDPA. You know, what I say, most IDPA, is what I call IDPA run by USPSA. <laughs> it's USPSA shooters run an IDPA match. And for instance, here in Flagstaff, Arizona, I shot some IDPA matches 
and it was run by USPSA shooters. And one of the guys said, well, this is one of the silly rules, meaning a practical holster or using cover. That's a silly rule. This is one of their silly rules. Okay, good. That's a silly rule. Um, so let's just say that IPSC and USPSA, I'll do this, declined continually till this day has declined in value as I'm not saying it's not valuable. It's not saying to not do it. I mean, I'm not saying that I don't want to be, be misunderstood there. I believe you should go shoot IDPA, USPSA, Glock matches, mm -hmm. cowboy action shooting. You know, I don't care. Go do any of that uh, or PPC or anything, you know, get out and shoot your damn gun. And if you can draw from the holster under time pressure, et cetera, et cetera, shoot a silhouette-ish target, do it. But that said, the, the early days were better for gunfight prep preparation. And by the early days, I, I mean pre-1980. It's so funny, this guy, you met him, at the at the surgical speed shooting summit the guy keith tyler he's a top competitor he won the uspsa law enforcement award apparently in the 90s or the early 2000s and he said you know things were more practical in the early days meaning the 1990s and i'm like yeah <laughs> dude that was not the early days and by the 1990s it had gone to hell uh in my opinion, and, and other people. So what happened? My buddies got kicked out. And this is where I want to touch on some history I don't want to be lost. Right. Michael Harris ran a program in Southern California, monthly rifle matches and monthly pistol matches. I may not have been in on the very beginning of this in terms of I was not there for the leather slaps of the late 1950s. However, I do believe I was on the ground floor of practical rifle shooting, which started in the late 1970s. I shot the first Soldier Fortune three gun match in Columbia, Missouri at the Ray Chapman Academy in 1980 when I was 18. And, and, uh, and I shot a rifle match with Michael Harry's and Michael Horn, et cetera, Lyle Wyatt. In fact, I got to show you this. This is, this is, I'm going to go grab this off my wall. All right. Um, it's 1979 what I believe one of the very first combat rifle matches. Um, let's see. That's me. <laughs> uh -huh. That's Lyle Wyatt, Michael Horn, and Michael Harry's. <laughs> 1979. Uh, but so, and that was at the location where Michael Harry's held monthly rifle matches and monthly pistol matches. Somebody who was there was Daryl Bulky, by the way, shot with that group. Um, so those are what I believe. So let's take the lineage, Leather Slap, Southwest Pistol League, to Michael Harry's monthly 
exercises at Desert Marchman Range in Palmdale, California, um, or outside of Palmdale, up in the Angeles Forest. Um, Michael said that was an experimental program. We were not there to win awards. We were there to experiment and learn what worked. Monthly pistol matches, monthly rifle matches. Simultaneously, Lyle Wyatt and Michael Horn from Bakersfield would from time to time hold full surprise exercises uh, at various locations, invitation only, 12 people. And I credit that. I, I won the National Tactical Invitational, which I'll talk about in a second. I won that in 1994, my first time. And they're like, well, how did you win your first time here? I'm like, because of the stuff Michael Harry's and, and well, mainly Michael Horn and Lyle Wyatt and also Michael Harry's. Um, it was because of what I did in the 80s. So here's the point. The point is, quote, I mean, they, they scored it and there was a winner. So technically it was competition. However, there was a lot of thought put in the course design. There was a lot of thought. There was a purpose to everything that was done. It was not just run and gun for how, you know, the, the measure of effectiveness was not how many rounds did we fire today <laughs> it was what did we learn today and so that really where competition has value for preparation for a gunfight is what did i learn today if you learn something then the competition was of value for preparation for a gunfight otherwise it's just you know <laughs> just mental masturbation <laughs> the or, inter uh, or entertainment yes or entertainment which is it, fine there's yeah. nothing wrong and by the way we know and this is where i don't want this to get lost the technical shooting and gun handling skills are important what was so cool about this combat shooting tips is walt roush's the late walt roush uh article on the on the national tactical invitational so anyway i you know we we got a limited amount of time we can't we can't talk for three hours we might talk for <laughs> over an hour i don't know where we're at now but uh let's move along in history from so i mentioned the first soldier fortune match that was held at the chapman academy then there were a couple more, and then in a, like 83, Ken Hackathorn was the match director, and they held it in Las Vegas. Uh, the, this was coincidental with the Soldier Fortune magazine convention. Well, Hackathorn hired Michael Horn to help him, and then Hackathorn figured out it was too much work. He'd rather just shoot the match, so he turned it over to Lyle Wyatt and Michael Horn, and for 20 years, they ran the Soldier Fortune match. The Soldier Fortune match, three-gun match, which was the predecessor to, you know, USPSA three-gun, which is simply a game. But the thing, they agonized over the course design. And the thing that they wanted was, and Cooper was actually the first guy to use this, is every stage must have combat logic meaning there there must be a reason behind what you're doing in the stage that 
somehow relates to actual gunfighting. And you need to put thought into that. That was Cooper's idea. That was what Wyatt and, and I was on staff, I think in the early nineties and they were serious as a heart attack about that. They agonized over the course design. And as a result, I believe, so the torch of, of competition as preparation for gunfighting passed from the Southwest Pistol League to Michael Harry's, Lyle Wyatt, and Michael Horn during the 80s. And, and like I said, from like 83 to 2000 or so, they ran that in Las Vegas. As you know, uh, so in the early 90s, Walt Rausch, Chuck Davis, and Skip Gokenauer were disgusted <laughs> with the direction that IPSC had taken. And so they came up with the NTI, National Tactical Invitational. National Tactical, by the way, these events, <laughs> these invitation only events that Lyle Wyatt and Mike, Michael Horn ran, they were subjectively scored to a large extent. Um, and I love what uh, a quote from Jeff Cooper. He says, fair, is a word used by children to bully their parents. <laughs> so this had nothing to do with fair and everything to do with saving your own ass or other people. So, so uh, Lyle and, and Michael ran this stuff through this, really the early 90s, I think. Then they tapered off and the torch was passed to the NTI. The NTI, much of it was subjectively scored. I, I got to look this up because this is hilarious. And I have it. We are so lucky, Lee, that I found this at the used bookstore in Flagstaff, Arizona, two days ago. Let's see. National and NTI stood for National Tactical Invitational. Yes, National Tactical Invitational. I'm going to read you the rules. I uh -huh. love it. So the rules are... Sniveling is a match disqualification, as are whining, bitching, etc. The stage judge makes the calls and scores the targets. That's final. No discussion, no protests. Next, unsafe or stupid gun handling is a match disqualification. And the third one is boorish behavior will get the offender escorted to the gate for armed individuals are expected to be gentlemen and ladies. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, NTI in a nutshell. And they didn't give trophies or prizes. The only thing I have, and it's on the wall behind me, is a fax from Walt Rausch, which now that he's dead means more to me. And I put a picture of uh, Masada Yub and John Farnham up there because they were there and I beat their ass. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but, but the point is, uh, NTI, and I, I shot it the first year it was at Gunsight. It was at Gunsight three years, 94, 95, 96. I shot it 94, 95 there. And I also shot it later in Pennsylvania. But NTI, the point was on learning. I mean, the, the goal was learning and 
for them to learn, for you to learn. And they had seminars. Um, I remember, you know, John Farnham gave seminars, Ayub. Uh, I talked uh, about some low light stuff and then other stuff later on. And so it was a learning event. So the torch, now let's just historically pass from the Leather Slap to the Southwest Pistol League to Michael Harry's Michael Horn and Lyle Wyatt with both Harry's program in Southern California. And by the way, there were other things, apparently there's a thing called the Paladin program run by a guy named Rick Miller in Colorado. There were other practical minded programs, um, but you know, I'm talking about the ones I'm familiar with. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, if somebody wants to comment, if there are comment sections on this, whatever, please, please add to the knowledge, because I am writing a book on the history of training right now. Um, but passed from, from the Southwest Pistol League to Harry's Horn and Wyatt to the NTI, which interesting was on the East Coast, you know, uh, you know, and, and as, as we know, sometimes uh, people, groups of people come up with like-minded individuals come up with like-minded like ideas. And, and uh, the NTI is one of the great things of, of combat shooting and it, it no longer takes place. But, and, and I'll tell you what, and this is the truth, is to run something Remember what I said, what is important is the thought that is put into it. And that is actually a lot of work. That is very intensive. And running these events is labor intensive. I mean, NTI, geez, they had probably a two dozen volunteers running the NTI. And I know that the Soldier of Fortune match, you know, they had a bunch of uh, people. That was the hardest, by the way, that was the hardest I ever worked in my life was the well describe describe a stage at the NTI. Well, so NTI they had they had ten approximately ten stages. Some were live fire shooting, some were simunition against role players. They usually had one stage that had a pickup gun, like for instance a pump shotgun or a lever action rifle that you had to use a gun that was not your own. And so uh, NTI stage, uh, simunition stage, you're going into, you're going to a gas station and pumping gas. They say, that's your instructions. You're going to gas station, you're pumping gas. And while you're pumping gas, you're accosted and maybe an attempted robbery or whatever it is. Or you go to the cleaners to pick up your clothes. And while you're there, some guy comes in to kill his ex-wife or whatever it is. Um, the live fire stages were more representative of something like Ipsic, but there were only, you know, maybe half of them were live fire and half of them were, were force on force. In the end, uh, in Pennsylvania, they have what they call ATSA. ATSA is American Tactical Shooting Association, which purely existed to run the NTI. They had an actual area where they they took your gun, made sure you didn't have any a real gun or real ammo or a knife, and gave you a simunition gun and just set you loose in this town and said, "Okay, go to the cleaners, go pump gas, go go do this." 
and you would have three encounters with the locals, <laughs> for better or worse. Um, uh, just as an aside, by the time it got to me my fourth or fifth year, I was curious. I, I told them, hey, don't give me a gun. I want to just walk around completely unarmed and see what happens. <laughs> so so uh, <clears throat> anyway, so there was that. Then, so today, and this isn't a competition. I just want to put a plug for Tom Givens' tactical conference. Mm -hmm. Really, I believe the torch has passed to Tom in the tactical conference with respect to keeping the flame alive for training on a larger scale as an organization. And what I mentioned earlier, I actually interestingly believe that the Gunsight Alumni Shoot is probably the best place for a competition. And I'd like to say one thing, uh, which John Holsham blew up the internet about a year ago, I shot a local, it's probably a USPSA match, maybe it was an IDPA match, and I was preparing a student of mine to shoot the Gunside alumni shoot. And I told her, I said, look, all I care about is you put all your rounds in the A zone, because that's how they score uh, the gunsight match. They give you a huge penalty for a miss, for one thing. Well, we shot the match. There were 13 people. She was 11th. I was, I think, 8th or 9th. But I had the second most number of A hits. She had the third most number of A hits. Second overall had the most. But the point is, first overall had five misses and hit two hostages yep. and still won the match. And as far as I'm concerned, <clears throat> anybody that hits a hostage should finish behind anybody who doesn't hit a hostage. Yeah. And anybody who has a miss should finish behind anybody who doesn't have a miss. That's yeah, just, that, yeah. that, that was kind of the beginning of the end for me in IDPA. Um, you know, I went, shot a couple of club level matches, got my clock cleaned, uh, started putting some dedicated effort into it and quickly moved up uh, in several classifications. And I would go and I would be shooting for max accuracy at the matches. Like it just burned me up to drop a point. I, right. wanted, every, I wanted everything in the down zero. And I never could get above middle of the pack. And it's like, okay, well, I got to start pushing hard. And I started seeing my standings start to creep up a little bit, but I started to do things like drop more points. And then I got into a couple of times where I hit non-shoots, you know, or, or hostages or non-threats, however you want to call them. But like, all right, this is, this is, I've gotten everything I can get out of this. It's starting to be counterproductive. And so I gave it up and, and quit going. And plus there was some local political entry around, around some of our stuff here. And it just, okay, this, my, my hobby, my entertainment and fun has ceased to be fun. No, so not, yeah. So I'm not going to yeah. do it anymore. So, so it's kinda, yeah, I went back a couple of years ago and started trying to shoot matches and I made it, went to two and I'm like, all right, I, I'm, I'm done. And it's nothing against the, the people running the matches. Right. And again, it's just fun. So yeah. there's two things I want to make sure to, to yeah. say. One is I was talking to John Horshen last week, the week before, 
And I had the blinding flash of the obvious, which is a, an IPSC or IDPA or USPSA competitor is concerned with the aggregate of all of their shots on a stage as it relates to the stage design, the rules, the target, and the timer. Where So they're concerned with all of their shots and their total time. They are not concerned with each individual shot. And in the real world, each time you pull the trigger, you launch a death BB. And those death BBs are flying around in your town or your supermarket or wherever. And that's as literally as serious as a heart attack. And so, so I knew that the, and I don't have this figured out quite yet. And when I get to the conclusion, I'll let you know. But I believe it is teaching an improper mindset as pertains to pulling the trigger on a gun. Pulling the trigger on a gun for real in the real world is a life and death matter. Each time you pull the trigger and has nothing to do with the sum total of the times you pull the trigger. And there seem to be a lot of people who feel that if you pull the trigger once, you are obligated to go to slide lock. <laughs> um, you know, we see police videos or whatever is, is like, I, th I believe Louis Arbuck was a real pioneer with his erratically moving targets. Uh -huh. because he was like, he said, if you fire, if you automatically fire two shots at a real human being who's moving the second one's going to miss what you were shooting at because that's just physics um so i believe i believe in the value of competition i believe that it will forge your skills it certainly forged mine however and again i am still i'm still thinking about this but but uh, ken hackathorn said uh a gunfight is not an IPSC match, you know? And the flip side of that is someone said, uh, a, a competition's not a gunfight, but every gunfight is a competition. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's not necessarily either or, it's and and both. However, uh, boy, this, like I say, this is life and death. And you better be engaging your brain when you train, when you practice, and damn sure if you pull the trigger for real. And so actually, I just, I just had a blinding flash of the obvious is, is how are you going to pull the trigger for real while thinking if you turn your brain off while you're practicing and training? Yep. <laughs> uh, and the thing you said about about trying for a hits or all zero down or whatever, and if you think about it, so so some of these top competitors say, well, I I try for about ninety percent a hits, or the other thing is to win, they really have to gamble, you know, to mm -hmm. to win a major match, you are pushing it on the edge and gambling, 
And I'll tell you what, you're pulling the trigger out in Flagstaff, Arizona. I don't want you gambling while me or my wife are the backstop. Right. I want you to be dead certain <laughs> to the degree you can. And, and I believe that, that the stress on, like you're saying, when you shot accuracy mm -hmm. is, is so, cause here's what I say. If you can't guarantee you're going to hit in practice or even a match, what do you think you're going to do when the bullets are flying yeah. both ways? Yeah. I really like the, the way you put it there just a second ago is they're more concerned with the aggregate of every shot versus each individual shot. Yeah, I believe that's the crux of it. Yeah, I, I think that is, is that just sums the whole thing up in a nutshell. Yes, it right does. There. And, and like I said, it was a blinding flash in the audience. <laughs> and Ocean said, wow, I think you actually put your yeah. on something there. We, we could have done that and the show would have been five minutes. Yeah, well, even a pig <laughs> finds a truffle once in a while. <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. I was involved in a discussion here in the last week or so. And on this very topic and the whole thing, you know, well, if you never, if you never allow yourself to miss, you'll never get better because you'll never push your limits. And, well, well that's okay, true. okay. That is true. Yeah, it, it is. A, but, but, and again, so. So I, you know, I may seem wishy-washy in the sense that yeah. I'm not saying don't go compete. Oh, the other thing I wanted to say. So you go train, you go to Gunsight, you go to Lee Weems, you go to Tom Givens, John Holshin, John Farnham, whatever. You take your classes, you go practice, you've, you feel like you've got a leg up on being able to do this. So here's what I recommend. And I'm going to, my son-in-law, I sent him to, uh, the first thing I did was send him to a four-day AUB class. Why? Because he learned the rules of the road and he went on a range and shot while people were watching him to be safe. Those are the two things I believe. First, do no harm. The most important thing is safety. The second most important thing is know the legal aspects of deadly force. The third, by the way, the third do no harm is that when you shoot, you don't miss. So this brings me to, you go to a match. So first of all, somebody said, you need to learn how to show up because a lot of these places show up with a loaded gun, they're just going to kick you off. So figure out how, what, what their society is, how to show up, how to come to the line and not get kicked off the range. It's funny, slight digression. My very first match, by the way, I showed up with a Bianchi X-15 shoulder holster and a Colt 9mm combat commander that I had gotten for Christmas, my 15th birthday. And speaking, Lee, here's a trivia. Do you know what a Lee loader is? Mm -hmm. So a Lee loader was a little kit and you'd Definitely. bang on it with a hammer and, the, yeah. and load your ammo and scoop the powder. Well, the yeah. early Lee loaders, not only did you bang on it to resize and seat the bullet, you also banged on it to seat the primer. About every, <laughs> every hundred times it'd go pow and like blow up. Well, anyway, so I showed up with Lee loaded lead bullet ammo that malfunctioned probably three or four times. But I showed up at the match, 15 years old, and they brought Michael Harry's and they said, make sure this kid doesn't shoot himself or anybody else. 
So I actually connected with Michael Harry's uh, in January of 1977 at my first match, and he became a very good friend. Uh, but at any rate, you show up your first match. I believe everybody should shoot till they get to kind of the third stage, the first stage. Do not get disqualified. What does that mean? It means that you were safe. So the main thing, do not get disqualified. In fact, if you shoot a match and don't get disqualified, that's a huge thing. It means you were safe. You know, it, it not only does it mean you were safe, it means you were safe under pressure. The other thing besides being safe, hit every single round. I don't care if you get a penalty for using your right hand instead of your left. I don't care how long it takes you. So shoot a match, do not get disqualified and hit every single round. After that, what's next? Shoot it and, and follow and don't get any penalties. What does that mean? You were able to think while hitting with every single round and being safe. That's a huge thing while other people are watching. And then the third stage is, you know, shoot the close targets quicker and the far target slower or whatever you need to do. But even if you simply go to a match, do not get disqualified and hit every single round you fire, you got value out of competition. Um, so, so, and that is the, the thing about IPSC, USPSA, IDPA, Glock, or cowboy action shooting, is you can draw out of the holster and shoot at things that vaguely resemble human beings. <laughs> so, so I absolutely believe in the value of it. However, you can, there is more value than is, <laughs> there is, there is 10 times as much value on the table as is at an IPSC or IDPA match, because I've seen it with my own two eyes. I've been to full surprise matches at Soldier Fortune, they did not allow a walkthrough and they put huge thought into the course design at NTI. Not only did they have live fire, but they had force on force. And, uh, you know, like I say, the gunsight match, one thing I love about the gunsight match, they run last year was 250 people. So it was all shot on steel because they mostly, they had to do that for efficiency, but you got a 10 second penalty for every miss. Uh -huh. And I told my student, I said, hit with every shot. If it takes you nine seconds, you're still better off than if you miss. <laughs> and that's one thing I like about that yeah. is, I, I mean, that's, that's my personal philosophy. Misses, anybody that misses one shot should finish behind anybody that hits with every shot. And people are like, well, what do you mean? Yada, yada, yada. Well, guess what, Rob Latham, or, you know, whoever the, the hot shot is today, if you're so damn good, you hit every shot faster than everybody else. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, yeah. I want to touch on the TACCOM match just for a second, because you, you know, because that's what we're saying is the, the current standard bearer. I'm saying gun side is. Yeah. Actually. Yeah, uh, well, I haven't shot the TACCON match, so I can't speak on that. Um, 
I've shot it numerous times, and so so I can speak on it. Uh, there's a standards portion, and the standards portion determines who are the top 16 males and then the top eight females that go into the uh, the shootoffs. And it is so tight that you can see complete flip flops of who those top 16 are each year from year to year, and you know, there was one year I made it in, and I think I finished, oh gosh, in the top eight. And then the next year I didn't even make the finals. Right. And then I come back and I made the finals again. And, but you'll see that same kind of flip-flop. And you'll, you'll look back as you, you know, you go up to shooting the male man, you look back and you see somebody standing behind the tape that's not shooting and go, he's a master level Ipsic guy or a grandmaster level USPSA guy. Why isn't he up here in these top 16? And it's one of those things where all it takes is a slight bobble coming out of the holster, a flood reload, something along those lines, and the standards match or a malfunction, and it throws you completely out of the out of the spectrum. And I think there's a bit of realism to that, because that's what's going to happen on the parking lot. Right, but well, I will I will counter with, and you were there yeah, when yeah. John Hearn said that the reality of it is if you're at a B shooter level mm -hmm. USPSA, you are you are plenty good for the real world. So these these razor edge flip flopping yep. that you're talking about, yeah. uh, really, you know, getting and this this does bear on what we're saying, which is, this is a perfect perfect right. thing to talk about because once you get to a certain level. You're just gilding the lily, really, yep. with respect to real world. Anybody that ever was in the top 16 is more than good enough for most situations, you know, notwithstanding luck, which obviously right. is a factor. I just want to, I just want to reiterate right. uh, my opinion. Anybody, whatever the match, I don't care what it is, anybody who misses a shot should right. not beat somebody who hits every shot and this to me is a matter of developing the correct attitude with respect to the real world i yeah. believe if you're yes there is value on pushing it till you crash i agree and so that's the counter argument but but i really yeah. there's something and i again it's it, it has to do with this aggregate versus Every single shot is life and death. And I do believe that that, that is important. Um, and I do, I, I know I keep, I've said this twice. So this is my third times the charm is stage design is what has changed. If you look at the old days, there were short, most stages at most were 12 rounds. Uh, a lot of them were single strings of six rounds, you know, because people shot a lot of revolvers back then or relatively mm -hmm. so. But but putting the thought into course design again is why I feel, you know, where I, and again, I can't speak to the TACCON match, but but I do know the stuff I've seen, the gunsight people put thought into it. And I think the thought they put into it is how are we going to do something different or better than last year? And that's what I saw in the Soldier Fortune match 
And the other thing is, what are we testing? You know, we're not just throwing targets out like like taking a you know pickup sticks or whatever. Uh, it's what do we want to test on this stage? What do you know? And it's it's like again the the thought put into the stage design results into forcing the person to shoot the stage to think i don't know if you've read dustin solomon's book but i'll send you a copy i got actually a hundred down in my garage <laughs> i'll send you a copy that's a promise uh -huh. um, but he says so so you have a uh, a simulator like a fats machine and it's 4k and it's wonderful and it's like almost like the scenarios are academy award winning acting <laughs> of the domestic violence or the bank robbery or whatever the scenario is and he says that people confuse that that is fidelity and what he says is the actual fidelity is what did the shooter have to do did what is on the screen make them move like they would have to move in the real world or shoot or talk or whatever and and that is what i'm saying about course design is did your course design cause the shooter to have to do some things that would actually happen for real and you can see where this this run and gun shit is not what they'd have to do for real unless they're in the gold medal round of the mass shooting competition. Yeah. You know, that's not a real, I was watching <laughs> something today, some woman that said, you know, whatever her name was, shoots, shoots the steel targets. They didn't even show the targets. They just showed her bang, 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 reload, bang, 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 move, reload, you know, okay, that's all good and well. And I'm not saying there's no value in that. But boy, and this is my, you know, uh, people say, well, the, the, you know, the Delta Force shoots competition and the SEAL team shoot competition, they weeded them people out for their mindset long before they shot competition. The competition is not going to ruin them. It, it is going to ruin somebody who, because they made a grandmaster, they think it got dialed in and they got no hand-to-hand -hand skills and they got no first aid skills and et cetera. And they don't carry a gun. <laughs> hey, hey, Lee, <laughs> I got this thing with me every damn day. Right. <laughs> That's my five shot airweight Ipsic gun. <laughs> 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 all right well, we are fast closing in on an hour and a half so do you have all any, right well thank you very thoughts? much for this this you have any, great any closing thoughts uh course design um and every time you pull the trigger you're launching a death bb and that is life literally life and death and as John Hearn said, you really don't want to be pulling the trigger in the 21st century. So as I've said a million times, your number one option for personal security is a commitment to avoidance, deterrence, and de-escalation. 
and I'm the world's biggest chicken. <laughs> you're, bark, 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 bark. you're looking at him. <laughs> How can people get in touch with you if they if they want to? Uh, I don't know. Stanford.andy at gmail.com. I'm right. I'm kind of I'm working for Surefire as a consultant, but but um I got some private students. If you're in there, if you're in Flagstaff, Arizona, show up. We'll go to breakfast or lunch. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Lee. And you're right. great. I love what you do. You are archiving important stuff. And I'm just, it's an honor to be here a second time. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for joining us. And uh, just like your number one asset is your time, the, the audience's number one asset is their time. And as always, I'm appreciative that they choose to spend some of it with us. All right. Thank you very much.